Well, good morning. <clears throat> I've got to wait for my throat to clear out. Uh, correction to the uh, program, we're not having communion this morning. That's an artifact uh, from last week, as I understand it. However, that word communion is an interesting one. Uh, if you read a lot of the, uh, the books from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, it was a word that was used as we use the word fellowship now, but often used in terms of our fellowship with our Lord. We, in communion with our Lord is to have close, intimate fellowship uh, with our Lord. We, do, we tend to just use it when we celebrate communion now. We move the pulpit because I'm going to be using slides, and we don't have a pointer, so I'm going to have to be looking over here saying, next slide, please. And I did bring my own trusty uh, green pointer here so we can point on things on the slides. So if you would, let's start with the first slide. We read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, and it actually, the, the passage starts back in verse 20, and you could turn there. By the way, it'd be easiest if you turn to these verses. Uh, I've, I've put them up there, but I think it'd be best if you turn to them, and if you want the slides, oh, we're having some difficulties. Okay, and I won't move. <laughs> uh, better. All right, so until they get the other sound going. Um, if you want the slides, I'm more than welcome to send them to you. Just give me a piece of paper with your name and email on it or give it to my wife. And uh, I, I usually give out handouts with all my preaching notes, but uh, I've been used to preaching to about 30, 35 people recently, and that's been a little easier to print at night than to print a couple hundred copies. But this passage, uh, recently I was teaching through the book of First Peter, and this passage here is the centerpiece of the book. This book, First Peter, is about suffering. It's about persecution. And it's about how we should respond to suffering and persecution. And the centerpiece of the book, then, is this example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Peter writes here, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But, contrast, if when you do what is right, that is what is righteous, and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then verse 21, very interesting. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And you know, this time, and I've, I've taught through First Peter a couple, two, three times. This time through, it really bothered me to realize that this is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering, during his ministry, most focused, because when you look at verse 24, as he bore our sins to the cross... This is most focused on his passion, the passion week, the suffering that he endured right up to his death on the cross. And you read this and you realize Peter's saying, he's our example. We have been called to follow in his steps. And that call to follow in his steps literally uses this word graphe, which means to write. And you know, many times when you learn how to write, the teacher, your mother would write the letters on the paper, and when you first learned to write, you literally copied exactly the letters underneath until you, your motor skills learned how to write. That's the word here. 
We have literally been called to follow in his steps. And I started thinking, well, if, if Christ is, and we know he is, fully God and fully man, how in the world could I possibly obey and follow in his steps when we're talking about the suffering that he endured, the unjust suffering, he was hated without a cause, the unjust suffering that he endured on his way to and up to the cross. And he's his example for us to follow. So that, that got me studying. So how, how did this work? He's fully God, and yet he's fully man. Did he rely on his fully God part? Did he rely partly on his fully God part? What did he do as a man? How did this all work together? So what I want to do today is I want to walk through a biblical picture very logically, very slowly and carefully, and build up a picture so that we too can see how it is that we can follow Christ, our example, and, and use it to help us to encourage us when we are suffering, we're suffering persecution, when we're really fighting our flesh, and we're determined in temptation not to sin. So we're going to take a look at this today. <clears throat> so let's start. Go to the next slide, please. Let's start in the beginning when Christ was incarnated and turned into Luke chapter 1, verse 30. This is when the angel Gabriel is visiting Mary. And the angel Gabriel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He will be great. And you can see the dots there. I'm skipping parts of the verses. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. In verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. So what I highlighted here on this slide is the fact that Luke, through the, of course, the Holy Spirit through Luke, is showing us that, first of all, our Lord and Savior is going to be fully human. Okay, he's going to be a son. He's going to have an earthly father, David. But he's also showing us through Luke that he is going to be the son of the Most High. He's going to be the son of God. And we could develop the whole theology, but that's why we say that our Lord Jesus is fully God and he is fully man at the same time in one person. But again, how can I be like him knowing that right here the Holy Spirit has come upon Mary, that he is, he is fully God? How, how much did he use that God side to endure going to the cross? All right, so let's start on that, and we'll go to the next slide. Turn, if you would, to Philippians 2. And I want you to see the passage. We, we know it in theology as the kenosis, the self-emptying. But I want you to have a perspective then on what happened during, before and during the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. So in Philippians 2, Paul writes in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in, the appearance, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let's walk through this. That's what I wanted you to turn there. Okay, so first of all, it says that although he existed there in the form of God, that's the word in Greek, morphe. We talk about morphing. It, it's this picture of his inner nature, his inner nature, his, his substance, his being is to be God. And then he backs that up, Paul does, and he says then he does not regard equality with God. It's a synonym. It's saying the exact same thing, that, that he is God. Internally, Jesus is God. And then, of course, it says equality with God. So it's even telling us this is with another his equality is, who is with God. So huge emphasis that our Lord is God. In John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This verse is saying the exact same thing. And we know during Christ's life that he never minimized, he never denied his deity. He was fully God. But then it goes on, and Paul writes that, that he did not regard equality of God to be a thing to be grasped. And that there says it, he didn't regard his equality, his being God, as something to be held on to. He did not insist on retaining all that he is as God, all of its powers, its rights, its prerogatives, okay? But in contrast to holding on to that which is God, what did he do? And look at verse 7. But he emptied himself, okay? He emptied himself of all the prerogatives, all of the rights, all the privileges, all the power that he had as God. And you say, well, what does it mean to empty? Well, it means to literally empty completely, to empty completely. But Paul doesn't leave us with just a word study. He goes on and he tells us just how far our Lord Jesus emptied himself. And if you look then at, at verse 7, there he says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. The reason I pointed out that word form before, because here it is again. And so the Holy Spirit through Paul is telling us that even though he has the full essence and nature as God, he took on the fullness of humanity. He took on the fullness of humanity. Internally, our Lord Jesus Christ is fully human. And he took on the, the form of what? A bondservant. Uh, Paul called himself a bondservant. What's a bondservant? Well, one author says it's a doulos in the Greek. A bondservant owned nothing, not even the clothes on his back. Everything he had, including his life, belonged to his master. John MacArthur says, relative to his glory, the king of kings and lord of lords willingly became the bondservant of bond servants. This picture you're seeing here is this great emphasis on the fact that he is God, equality with God. And he didn't grasp it, not only became a human, but took on the lowest possible humanity, this, this internal attitude of, of being a bond servant. Well, Paul's not done here. He goes on in verse 7, and he says, and, and being made in the likeness of man, of men, excuse me. Uh, this is, is to be made exactly into what it means to be human. It's beyond appearance. This is to be made 
human, okay? Fully human. Uh, as we're going to see throughout the Gospels, his family, his friends, his opponents, they, they would not recognize him as God. They would only see him as a fellow human being. They would see him as a man, all right? That's how completely he took on humanity. Paul's not done there. He gets to verse 8, and he says, being found in appearance as a man. Another way to say it, he was always recognized as a man when he walked on the earth. And you're going to see, I'll show you a lot of verses. This is going to amaze you. He was always recognized as a man. You think about superheroes. I didn't put this in the notes. Superheroes in, in the movies. They always have a suit. Whenever they go into superhero mode, they always got, you know, Superman opens up his shirt and you know, he's got his, his suit on. They're always identified somehow so that when they're in superhuman mode and their superpowers, okay, there's the guy. He looks like a spider. Okay, there's the guy. He looks like this. And, and that wasn't Christ. He always looked like a man. Think about what that meant when he, he spoke, when he did miracles and these things. People were looking at you just like I'm looking at Jan right now, or I'm looking at Max. He was just another man. And, of course, we know from Isaiah, there was nothing about his appearance. He, he wasn't like Saul, who, you know, God you know, chose Saul because he was the big, strong guy, good-looking and all of that. There was nothing about his appearance that would have made you think that I am looking at fully God and fully man here on earth. So he was seen as human. He was seen as a man. And you look at these two verses already. You're seeing he's fully human on the inside. He's fully human on the outside in his appearance. But Paul's not done. He humbled himself. Now we, we, we talk about his attitude, his, his person as a personal choice to humble himself. And the word means to lie low. He lowered himself relative to God and becoming a bondservant, he lowered himself relative to mankind. And then it says here, well, let's see how low. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does that show us there? That, that phrase shows us both his humanity and his deity. How does it show us his humanity? Well, God cannot die. So when he became obedient to the point of death, that's showing us his humanity because God cannot die. But it also shows us his deity because he chose to die. I don't have a choice. Because of the fall, it's mandated that I will die unless the Lord comes and raptures us. And I've been praying for that in about five minutes, but I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, he chose. Only God can choose to die. And for this reason, he said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. I lay down my life, John 10, 17. When you look at this passage and you think about how you think about our Lord and Savior, we unfortunately don't study the Gospels as much as we should. We tend to focus on the letters. When you think about Christ living his life, how much have you really thought about just how fully human he was and is. How much do you think about how much he completely humbled himself when he left his throne and he was incarnated here and he lived among us? I have to be honest. The emphasis of Philippians 2 is just amazing. 
over and over, fully God, fully God, and yet fully man. And he chose the life of obedience to death as a bond servant. If you change the slide, please. That, that starts to raise these questions then. All right, you see this focus on his humanity. Well, how did he live? How did he do this? He was completely without sin his entire life. John 15 says even he was hated without a cause. How did he live this life of obedience, resisting temptation, perfectly carrying out his will, if we know that he is, per Philippians 2, he's humbled himself? Well, let me suggest a couple things that most people think. I think most people don't think about Philippians 2. They don't think about how much he humbled himself. It's very common for people to say, well, Christ lived his life here on earth. He, he just used all his God power. He was fully God. They don't think about the kenosis. They don't think about his humanity. And they think they, that he did it because he was fully God. Others say, well, we know that, that he could not sin. Now, we're not going to talk about that today. It's called his impeccability that Christ could not sin. He wasn't tempted like we were. So between the fact that he's got all these powers as God, the fact that he cannot sin, uh, that's how he did it. Well, I think as you get to more mature Christians, they start to realize, well, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able not to sin. And I'm going to focus more on not to sin because I'm not here to teach us how to do miracles and how to raise the dead and those kind of things. We're certainly not here to, to be able to forgive sin. Our challenge is we're called to be this example, called to, to be like Christ. He's our example, so when we do what's right and we suffer for it, we are to respond as he did. So how did he respond to temptation? Oh, well, many people would say, well, it was that Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was kind of like a bodyguard. I've seen that one. He was kind of like a bodyguard, and, and he stood over Jesus, and he watched him, and he made sure that he didn't sin. Well... It's not what Philippians 2 said, okay? It's not what we're going to see here in Scripture. Um, it wasn't even easier for him not to sin. See, he was born without a sin nature, as we are. So he wasn't internally tempted to sin, as we are. But as we know, the external temptation on him to sin was far greater than any external temptation we would ever face <clears throat> far greater than any temptation we could imagine. He had the full thrust of Satan and all the demons trying to get him to sin. You know, we think about how quickly we give in to temptation. Satan knew. Think about Satan knew that if he could get Christ to sin in just one thought in his entire life, one time, he would have defeated the plan of God. Christ wouldn't have been raised from the dead. He would have been a sinner such as us. So Satan threw everything he could at Christ. And yet we're called to be like Christ. It's an amazing thing that we're called to do. So I think when you look at the most of the ways that we consider Christ in his life, when we think about the gospels, I have to be honest, and I'll raise my hand first. I have not thought as seriously as I should have in terms of how much our Lord and Savior struggled with sin. How much he struggled with temptation, and yet he never sinned. So, let's go to the next slide. 
That's the question, and it turns the question to us. <clears throat> and it says, so if Jesus was perfectly obedient because he was perfectly God, then how can we, if we then think that he was also perfectly man, how can we follow in his steps? What can we as humans rely on as the same way he relied on something about his humanity or something else if he didn't call upon his God side and, and live this life as fully God? Because I'm not God. <laughs> I am not God. I do not have those powers. And I honestly question how is it legitimate for these authors to command us to follow exactly step by step in the example of Christ when we are persecuted and when we suffer? How can I do that? How can I live a life like him? Well, then that leads us, if we go to the next slide, Christ did not live on this earth with his God powers as fully God. Okay. I couldn't be called to follow in his steps if he did, and I'm going to show you this. So the question then is, is humanity. What is the role that the humanity of Christ played in how he lived his life? Okay. Does his humanity have, some, have more to do with how he lived and, and wasn't, you know, didn't give in to temptation to sin? Did his humanity have more to do with everything he did in his life, in his ministry, and his teaching than we consider? And that we should be considering even more. Now, how did he do this? Of course, there's three choices. He did it fully as God. He did it as God and man. Or he did it as a man. So I'm going to pose this question here. And turn the slide, please. When you ask that question, what's the role of his humanity? The answer I'm going to show you from Scripture is that the emphasis must be placed on the humanity of Christ. His humanness. His being a man as the primary way that he lived his life day to day. And that includes all the temptation. That includes not sinning. That includes his miracles. Okay. Now, he was still fully God. And there are great debates. What, what, what if anything, did he do in his life that, that he used, if anything, that he used his God side? Okay, and probably the only thing that I've seen theologians be able to decide on is, is when he forgave sins, that that was probably just Christ himself forgiving sins. But when we look at his humanity, uh, we, we, we've got to emphasize that that was the primary way that he lived, that he wasn't in the background calling aside his, his deity, his God nature. Now, why am I doing this? Because he's our example. This is encouraging to us. We're going to look at Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in a new way for the rest of our lives, realizing he really can be an example. He lived here as a man, and he's going to show us how he did it so that we can do the same. So we're going to start with the prophets. Let's go to the next slide, please. Now turn to Isaiah. We've got three, three passages to look at in Isaiah I put them up here so I could do some emphasis, but they're going to be easier to see. This is our Isaiah prophesying about our Messiah. In Isaiah 11, our first passage, verses 1 to 5, 
Isaiah writes, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Holy Spirit will be caring for him, tending him, and what's the Holy Spirit going to be giving him? Well, I underlined it there. It's going to be giving him wisdom. We know wisdom is knowledge and action. It's going to give him understanding. He's going to give him the deeper mind, intellectual insights into events and persons. He's going to give him counsel. That's formation of strategy, planning, all that kind of things. He's going to give him strength, okay? All forms of strength, knowledge, spiritual knowledge, and he's going to give the Savior the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord God, the Father. And that's faith. That's a powerful life of faith that's going to be given to the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. These are all character traits that the Messiah will have that are going to come from the Holy Spirit. Now turn to Isaiah 42. Next slide, please. Verses 1 to 7. Okay. Behold my servant. Do you hear Philippians 2 in there? Bond servant? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out. A whole set of things that he's going to do. But look down in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. That is not a statement that you make to someone who is fully God on earth living out his full deity on earth. God doesn't need God's help while on earth. That is a statement to someone who is going to be human. And back at the beginning there, he says, I have put my spirit upon him. Now, in these two prophecies, and we'll see in the next one, you're talking about things that relative to us are past, present, and future. They're also showing us how the Lord is going to come in his second coming. He's going to come by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's turn to one more, Isaiah chapter 61. Do you see a consistent trend here? Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So if we go to the next slide, let's just summarize these and look, and you can see in the next slide three prophecies, all from Isaiah, all of them telling us 
that when the Messiah comes, he is going to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit for character qualities, the Holy Spirit for power to do things, the Holy Spirit for his life. If you think about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, who did the Holy Spirit indwell in the Old Testament? Kings, prophets, and people who were called for special tasks like in the building of the temple and such. Our Lord Jesus Christ embodies every one of the aspects of people who were indwelt in the Old Testament. One author, Bruce Ware, wrote, The role of the Spirit on the coming Messiah will be to empower his inner life and character and to fill his mind with knowledge and wisdom to empower the ministry he will conduct outwardly as he proclaims the message God has for him. Both inward character, outward conduct, then are tied to the empowering work that the Spirit will perform on this coming anointed one of God. The Holy Spirit. Who do we have? You heard John. Beautiful prayer. We have the Holy Spirit too. Our Lord Jesus was an example for us to follow because he lived his life as a man through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Is that encouraging? There's hope for us. (laughs) And we're not going to endure the temptation. We're not going to endure the persecution that he endured on his way to the cross. And yet we're given that same power in the Holy Spirit. So when you take the next slide and you look at my question again, what is the role of, uh, of Jesus' humanity? Well, it's really the, what is the role of the Holy Spirit and the humanity of Christ and how he lived his life? The emphasis must be placed on the humanity of Christ guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You've got to put together all those prophecies before he came. Put that together with the kenosis of the self-emptying himself completely, becoming a bondservant. And what you get is Jesus Christ, fully man, plus the Holy Spirit. Another way to look at this is, is, is you think when you look at these prophecies of the Holy Spirit on them, well, what role could the Holy Spirit play if he's fully God? And there's nothing that the Holy Spirit could add to Christ's deity, to his divinity. But when you look and you ask the question, what could the Holy Spirit provide for our Lord Jesus in his humanity? Then the answer is everything. Everything spiritual that he was need in his humanness, he was limited, is limited as we are. And all of his power, all his wisdom, all his knowledge coming through the Holy Spirit and through, as these, these things said, the power of God, which was through the Holy Spirit. So when you try to make sense of Jesus coming in the power of the Spirit, you have to admit that he fundamentally came as a man. Another way to look at it, he fundamentally came as a man if he was going to absolutely need all of his character qualities, he's going to get all of his character qualities, all of his power, strength, and all of those things through the Holy Spirit. A couple other quotes. Uh, Gerald Hawthorne wrote a great book on this, and he said, the Holy Spirit's presence and work in Jesus' life is one of the most significant biblical evidences of the genuinenesses of Christ's humanity. 
For the significance of the Spirit in his life lies precisely in this. The Holy Spirit was the divine power by which Jesus overcame his human limitations, rose above his human weakness, and won out over his human mortality. John MacArthur wrote, In his incarnation, Christ voluntarily submitted himself to the will, to do the will of the Father only through the direction, agency, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Only through the direction, agency, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, fully man, plus the Holy Spirit. And what are we? Fully man, fully human, plus the Holy Spirit. All right, now, um, you can turn off the slides for a minute. We're going to go to Luke 2. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Luke 2? I want to walk you through a story. Keep moving here. Luke chapter 2, we've got Luke's story of the birth of Christ. I think that takes up the first 20 verses, uh, followed by what is circumcision, then his dedication in the temple. Then it gets you out to about verse 39. And then at the beginning of verse 39, Luke writes, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Nazareth. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. We're going to come back to that. That shows physical, mental, and spiritual growth as a person. Look at verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And Luke then jumps right to the return in verse 43, and he says, And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware, unaware of it. Verse 44, But supposed him to be in the caravan, went on a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him, and then after three days they found him in the temple. Where was he? He was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his, under, all at his understanding and his answers. Now, as we go to these next verses, I want you to think about what the Holy Spirit wants us to see as he worked through Luke to write this passage. Think about what the Holy Spirit is showing us. Look at Mary and Joseph's response to Jesus. When they saw him, verse 48 says... They were astonished, and his mother said, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. They, they didn't look at Jesus and say, Jesus, they don't know that you're God. They don't know that you know all things. What are you, what are you doing here? Okay. They didn't ask about his conversations. They didn't ask about what he did for the last three days and where he was eating and where he was sleeping and, and, and all the things they were talking about. All they cared about was for three days they couldn't find their boy, their son. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to see. They, they, we have been anxiously looking for you. They were worried parents. What were Mary and Joseph raising? A boy. Okay, they're raising a boy. 
you know, as I mentioned, superheroes. Clark Kent, Superman. I try to, how would you explain? You could see his dad saying, okay, you know, they lived on a farm, go out and plow the fields. Comes, kids comes back at the end of the day, how'd it go? Well, dad, I got it on the, I got the plow on the side of the hill. Stupid tractor fell over. But, you know, I made sure that I, I landed underneath it so that it didn't get scratched. And then I carefully picked it back up and I took it back up to the top of the hill and it's just fine. And the dad says, oh, good, I was concerned about the tractor. No, three days, not just working at three days, and his parents are worried about a boy, a boy that they're raising. Okay, what were they raising? They were raising the human side of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it even says here, you know, it says here, he says back to them, look at verse 49, why is it that you were looking for me? Do you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. They weren't raising God. They were raising a boy. And he knew who his real father was. I had to be in my father's house. Now look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in their heart. The Holy Spirit through Luke is emphasizing to us the humanity, the boyhood of our Lord Jesus. This is the only story that we have of Christ's upraising, of his upbringing, is what we have here. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And this is his mother that treasured all these things in his heart. Not his caretaker, not his nanny, not his bodyguard, his mother. And he went back and he continued in subjection. But Luke's not done. Look at, look at the next verse, 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. We can turn the slides back on and go to the next slide there if we turn it on. And there, there's two verses here in verse 40 and verse 52 that are bookends for this whole passage. And the first one said, that he continued to grow and become strong and increasing in wisdom. The second one says he kept increasing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. First of all, they show all aspects of his growth, his physical growth, his spiritual growth. He continued to grow up as a person, as a human being. And when he was astonishing these men in the temple, how was he doing it? He wasn't doing it as fully God in human flesh, teaching these men. He was a boy growing up through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit, per Isaiah, gave him wisdom and knowledge and understanding and all of these things. The Holy Spirit wants us to see his state of growth. One story of his childhood, he grew up as a boy. We know his God side cannot grow. You try to think about his God side. His God side could, did not grow, does not age, does not need more wisdom, does not need more knowledge. This is a picture of his humanity with him growing up. And when he was in that temple, he was amazing them with what? Knowledge and things he learned from his parents, his rabbis, his own study, okay, and the Holy Spirit raising 
him up, growing him, and preparing him. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord, will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge. That was in Isaiah 11. That's the boy, Jesus Christ. His growth came through the Holy Spirit. How does our growth come? 1 Corinthians 2, illumination, through the Holy Spirit. We grow through the Holy Spirit too. And Isaiah 61 connects the Holy Spirit with him proclaiming the word of God. That's what he was doing here. He was growing up. So how was he able to amaze those teachers? Through his normal spiritual growth as a child, through the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, the, the Holy Spirit was in him. For us as parents, the Holy Spirit is in us as saved Christians. The Holy Spirit works through us for us to raise our children, for us to teach our children. That's how he grew up. He had to grow up. I'll ask this question. I'll answer it later. Could Jesus Christ have gone to the cross and died for our sins, taken on all the weight of our sins at the age of 12? Think about that. All right, let's move forward. Now you've got Christ. He just returns from the wilderness. He's been led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He's been tempted by Satan. He's led out of the wilderness. In verse 14, what does it tell us? Luke wants us to know, Holy Spirit wants us to know that his ministry now going forward after coming out of the wilderness is going to be powered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news spread about him through all the surrounding district. And then drop down to verse 16 in chapter 4 of Luke. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, brought up as a boy. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And then he went on and he says, and he began to say to them, that's in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He gets up, he's handed the scroll of the whole book of Isaiah. Did he choose Isaiah 53, the suffering servant? He chose this passage, okay? He chose Isaiah 61 to read, to proclaim that he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay. He didn't stand up and choose a passage saying, I am God in your midst. He says, I am here the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And in verse 22, what did they all say? Is this not Joseph's son? What does that verse tell you? They saw his humanity. In fact, when they say Joseph's son, that even drags his whole upbringing into this. We saw this boy raised in our town. This is a person. And here he's saying he's the Messiah. Yes, he is. Yeah, I'm the Messiah but I am fully man, and it's the power of Holy Spirit that is upon me. Now let's move forward. Next slide. He heals a demon-possessed man in Matthew 12. In verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man, 
this man, they saw him as a man, casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, okay? Satan, the Philistine god, Satan. What is his response? Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Who does our Lord, Jesus Christ, fully God, give credit to for the miracle that he had just done? Yes, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Fully man with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's, Let's move forward. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews. We've got a few passages there. Look at this here, verse 15 in chapter 4. I haven't been giving you time to turn to these passages. Sorry. My wife is smiling. I I won't hear about this now in the car because I admitted this here in front of her. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. There's one fact in Hebrews 4.15, Christ was tempted in all things as we are. There's another fact in verse 15, Christ did not sin. Now we know from Scripture there's a biblical fact that God cannot sin. And I put the references up there. We also know that, biblical fact, God cannot be tempted Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. James 1.13. So what's the conclusion you've got to draw from this verse? It was Jesus' humanity that was tempted. His humanity. He's fully God. He's fully man. God cannot be tempted. God cannot cannot sin. His humanity was tempted and he never sinned. Satan never won that victory of one thought there. You know, the illustration, when, you start, when you're putting all this together and you realize this is our, our Lord that went to the cross and never sinned. The best illustration I found of, of how you put together the humanity, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, it was this picture of a, a story of a, a swimmer swimming across the English Channel. You know, with 23 miles, terrible weather, waves, one of the most difficult swims in the world. And the swimmer has a boat behind him. Okay? The swimmer has a boat behind him, just in case. But the swimmer is prepared. The swimmer swims the whole way across the channel, never needs the boat. It was there, never needs the boat. So when he gets to the other side and somebody looks at him and says, well, the only reason you made it was because the boat kept you from drowning. The swimmer says, no, the boat didn't keep me from drowning. I swam. Okay, the boat was there in case I needed it. I never needed the boat. I kept me from drowning because I was prepared and I never needed the boat. And that's how we have to look at our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, with the work of the Father, the Father protecting him, grew him up just as we grow up, only grew him up, never sinning to the point that at 30 years old, he could go to the cross and take on our sin. And never along the way was he brought along 
in a, in a, at a point where he needed the boat. He needed the Father's power, needed the Holy Spirit to step in, needed to use his, his deity in order to save himself from sinning or from harm. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation, that's satisfaction, for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was, has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Scripture tells us it had to happen this way. He had to become a man. He had to grow up as a man. He had to face every temptation as a man, working through those, never sinning by the power of the Holy Spirit. He had to live fully as a man. One more. Let's turn to slide 5-7. Getting close here. Turn to Hebrews 5-7. In the days of his flesh. What's the author telling us? When he was a man. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. When does the most spiritual growth occur in your life? When you're tempted and halfway through that temptation you give in and sin? Or when you're tempted and you fight it the whole way, you fight the complete temptation and you don't sin? Obviously, when you fight the whole thing and you don't sin. Jesus Christ fed, fought every temptation completely. From the start to the finish, every temptation completely out the other side with all the forces of Satan against him, and he never sinned. Jesus Christ experienced more spiritual growth than we ever will. He never gave in. He experienced maximum spiritual growth, completely orchestrated by his Father through the Holy Spirit. Okay. This is a picture of our Lord living as a human being okay. in the days of his flesh, crying out. He struggled with temptation like we struggle with temptation, crying out, loud crying in tears to his father. This is not a picture of, you know, God, fully God here on earth. This is a picture of our Lord Jesus. This is a picture of our Lord Jesus when he's getting close to the cross and his father says here, says he, he was a son of his father. He learned obedience in verse 8 from the things which he suffered and having been made perfect. He did reach that point where he was made, brought to completeness. That's what perfect means. He was brought to completeness. When he was brought to completeness, he in his growth was ready to go to the cross. Ready to go. He wasn't ready at the age of 12. Wasn't ready at the age of 12. Let's go one more. Peter, his closest disciple, 
looking back, talking to the Gentiles. You know of Jesus of Nazareth? How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him? If we were Peter, and it's after the cross, and we're witnessing to the Gentiles, wouldn't we be tempted to say, yeah, I got to spend three years with God himself here on earth. But how does the Holy Spirit work through Peter to witness to the Gentiles for the first time here about the resurrected Christ? He is Jesus of Nazareth. That is his human earthly designation, okay? Not I was with Jesus fully God. No, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. His closest disciple, that's how he describes his Lord and Savior. Humanity of Jesus. Let's go to the next slide. I put this one up for the title of the sermon. This is Paul. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. This is a picture of our Lord Jesus on the throne today, our mediator intervening for us back to full glory in his glorified body. But Paul wants us to know that he is still a man. And that's why he is the mediator between God and man. See the picture over and over and over. I'm not going to have time to get into the second coming, but all those prophecies and all these pictures show us that when Christ returns in his second coming, he is going to be coming in the power of the Holy Spirit again. So let's go to our last couple slides here. So when you look at this and you say, when you do what is right and you suffer for it, when you do what is righteous, when you do what is godly good and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Same favor, remember? Christ grew up in the favor of God and man. You too can find favor with God because he left you an example. And the example we saw from scripture is not just as an example of his actions who committed nor sin or his deceit and all these kind of things. The example was what? He lived his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need even more. We have the flesh. We've got an internal battle. Our flesh wages war against the Holy Spirit in us. You want to see the verse? Go to Galatians 5.17 sometime. Walk by the Spirit and you're not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's the, the flesh that wages war against the Holy Spirit that's in you. So we need the Holy Spirit too. His example to us is not just how to act. His example to us is also to live every moment in the power of the Holy Spirit, not to live by our flesh. Sometimes go to the greatest prayer in Scripture, in my personal opinion, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. It starts out with Paul praying that we may be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. So that, and it goes to the next level, so that Christ may enjoy being in us. So that we can experience Christ working through our lives with his love towards other. 
This is from strengthening of the Holy Spirit. It even takes us to the next level. We can comprehend what is beyond the comprehensible, the love of Christ. And we can experience consciously Christ's love to us. And that prayer reaches its climax to says we can grow spiritually so that we have all of the fullness of God in us. And it all begins because we are grown, we are strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit. Parents, when we raise our children, Ephesians 6.4 says we are to raise our children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. We're to teach our children the life of Jesus Christ. Teach him the Lord. Teach them the Lord. We teach the gospels to our children. We teach them to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. And along with that, we teach them that we are, we, their parents, they depend on us, the Holy Spirit working through us. And the day when they are saved, they will depend on the Holy Spirit. So let's close. Last slide. So how, did the, how do we do it? Same way Jesus did it. The man, Jesus Christ, was guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He left us a complete example, both what and how we can face suffering, persecution in this world. He literally, perfectly walked by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, and so should we. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture. You have started in the Old Testament. You have taken us through prophecies. You clearly showed us that the Messiah would come as a man in the Holy Spirit. You showed us these things so that when our Lord came, as we read the Gospels now, we can watch and we can see and we can learn from his example. Uh, Lord Jesus, we can't thank you enough. We have uh, a new appreciation for what it meant for you to, up, to empty yourself, to be here, to set aside all that you are as God, and to live fully as us, as a man, and to completely depend upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we are in more in awe and in praise and adoration for what you did on the way to the cross. And then, of course, from there, the cross is just beyond our comprehension for what you were willing to do for us. And that's certainly all of yourself taking on our sin. And we thank you. We bless you. We praise you. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.